2: This is Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing. My chance to talk with artists, policymakers, and performers. To hear their stories, what inspires their creations, what decisions change their careers, what relationships influenced their work. Behind every good filmmaker is a brilliant editor, and Martin Scorsese is no exception. His counterpart, Thelma Schoonmaker, has edited every film the cinematic giant has done since Raging Bull, earning her three Academy Awards and seven nominations. With a face and demeanor like your favorite grade school teacher, one has to wonder how Schoonmaker has made it through editing the epic violence of Scorsese's films. But however she does it, it's working. She and Scorsese's 40 plus years of collaborating is widely considered to be one of the most successful working marriages in movie history. But talented as Schoonmaker is, Editing films wasn't always the plan. Born to American parents in Algiers in 1940, Schoonmaker dreamed of becoming a diplomat and working overseas. But fate intervened, and today, fresh off editing Scorsese's newest film, Silence, she looks back on the moments that shaped her, both as a filmmaker and a person.
3: Something like uh, Age of Innocence, we certainly had to slow down and, and figure out how to reach a pace that reflected 19th century New York. With Kundun, which was one of my favorites, uh, I had to really learn a great deal about Tibet itself. And also, Marty wanted to know how to shoot the sand mandala, which the monks make for two weeks, this beautiful, beautiful thing they make with just funnels of different colored sand. And then after two weeks, they wash it all away in the river. It's unbelievable and it's really hard work. Um, So he wanted to open Kundun, which we did, with very tight shots of images of the mandala and he wanted to know what were the important ones for uh, him to shoot. So I had to learn about the sand mandala. This was before we, we started shooting. I'm usually not needed before shooting. And so I got to go down and watch the monks make this incredible sand mandala. That was a lot of fun. Learning about Tibet and becoming acquainted with these wonderful Tibetans who were in the film because there weren't there weren't actors they were actually acting out what was happening to them um, that was a very extraordinary experience for me, and I've remained a supporter of the cause and and friends with Tibetans ever since, so that was really world changing for me as this movie now silence has been for me in what way? It's made me uh, think deeply about my own faith and also to learn so much about the people who are still Jesuits, for example. The the order, the fervor of that order um, is extraordinary to meet them and the advisors who came to help us on the film were so uh, amazing people. So I loved delving into uh, 17th century Japan. The Japanese actors themselves were so incredible. I couldn't believe how wonderful they were. Even the extras, you never had to worry about cutting away from a shot because an extra wasn't paying attention or not doing what they were supposed to do. Every single person who came from Japan to work in that movie were so dedicated. And uh, learning to edit people speaking Japanese or Japanese speaking a language that was not native to them, was was very interesting, too. But th- this, this film, Silence, has had the same impact on me that Kundun did.
2: When you talk about the sand mandala and you coming in early to discuss with him the, you know what shots you might need or not need for the sequence, but you say that you're not involved in that kind of composition typically. You don't sit down with him during the period of storyboards. Does he storyboard?
3: Oh yes, he still so he does. He still now he tends to write on the right side of the script the little the little image that he wants. No, he designs all the camera work. Always uh, has, and I'm not needed usually in the writing um, or any designing of the film. So I come on when it starts shooting, with the exception of Kundun, really. So uh, and when you
2: come on when it starts shooting, does he come? To, do you come to him? Because I mean, I've seen this experience on films that I've made where. Uh, with with any director where the, the editor is sending messages to them saying, we, we could use this, we could use this angle?
3: I rarely have to do that with right. him because he thinks things. He's a great editor, so he thinks like an editor when he conceives of the movie. He usually has an editing style in mind. Also, when he writes or co-writes the movie and when he shoots it, he's thinking like an editor. There are occasions where I do ask for things, for example, uh, in the drowning sequence, where Garupe, played by Adam Driver, drowns in silence, um, it was a very difficult shoot. Um, very cold, and Adam was getting, you know, hypothermia, and so I didn't feel I had quite enough footage for the drowning sequence, particularly because the stunt women in taiwan were were not uh sort of as tough as maybe more experienced stunt women would be um and to be shoved down under the water constantly was was difficult for them so that was one of the few times where was that
2: where was that shot
3: in in taiwan on this incredible sequence where uh rodriguez played by adam garfield is made to watch uh Japanese Christians pushed off boats wrapped in straw mats so that they will drown. It's a terrifying sequence. And Marty shot it with three cameras. So there wasn't a lot of control in that situation. Um, and he was very interesting. He had an idea that he wanted to show the horror of these people being pushed off in the water from a wide shot to show the banality of it, mm-hmm. like the banality of the way the Nazis killed people. Right. So it was a very complicated shoot. He was trying to get those wide shots, close-ups on Adam Garfield and cover Garupe and the other and the Japanese Christians, and it was all happening simultaneously. It was chaos. <laughs> but so I was eventually able, we never did get any additional footage, but I was able to sort of make it work, I think.
2: <laughs> so never a thought of going into a tank or doing anything with the set?
3: There was some thought of that, but then we did decided not to so but that's one of the few times there are occasions when i ask for something but he he's such a great editor you know he knows what he needs and my husband michael powell once said to him you don't need to do master shots cut into the center of the scene don't do master shots marty only does them now as rehearsal really so not that he doesn't love wide shots he keeps saying today with all the fast cutting that's going on, whatever happened to the shot, right. the shot that right. Stanley Kubrick would come up right. with. And like you Woody. Could,
2: like Woody. Yeah. A lot of wide shots. Let
3: Five it... minutes you could watch this incredible shot and never be bored. And now what's happened to it? He says it's just vanished. But,
2: but I want to get back to when you're in the editing room... Are you cutting a film together and you start hearing music yourself? What's the inner life for you Mm. when you're cutting a film?
3: Well, first of all, the most important time for me is when he looks at dailies. Now, when he's looking at dailies, I look at the footage first. Um, as soon as it comes in to make sure there isn't something missing or something wrong or sometimes the camera when one of the great shots in uh, Raging Bull where uh, it begins on De Niro down in the basement of this enormous stadium and he the steadicam camera is backing up in front of him it's an amazing tour de force shot Uh, Marty's preferred take on that was ruined in the lab Uh, there was a, a claw that went off in the camera and so I had to go on the set and tell him his favorite take was ruined. But fortunately we had just as good ones. But what he does in dailies is is really fascinating. I'm, I wish that in a way filmmakers could listen to him because he's very, very Tough on himself, and he constantly talks to me during the dailies. I like that. I don't like that. That's. I think I'm going to get better on take seven. Um, don't ever show that to me again. Burn that. <laughs> um, and so, and I'm also telling him what I think. First of all, he wants me to be a cold eye. He wants me not to have been on the set and see how they did something. Um, or hear from him what he's going to do, he wants me to look at it cold and tell him if it works. So that is my part of my job. So I tell him what I think, he tells me what he thinks, and from those incredibly rich reactions of him, I then begin to create selects, and then I do the first cut before he comes in when he's through shooting. And then from that point on, we do all the rest of the 12 if we can get away with it, 12 different edits of the movie together. Very- 12
2: different edits of the movie?
3: That's what we prefer to do if we can. Or one of the- Is there a
2: Bible that dictates what those 12 (laughs) are? Can you just, is there a phrase? Do you have a manual? Is there the Thelma Marty manual that mentions each 12 of those? No,
3: what happens is that, you know, we don't screen the first two or three cuts because we're still trying to get the film in shape. But once we start to screen with very few people, maybe 12 people who are friends, who we know will be honest, so he does confer with other people. Oh, yes. Well, sure. we debrief. I, I mainly do most of the debriefing afterwards. So we will screen with 12 people, say. Then I debrief them very heavily for two or three days. Uh, then we do the second cut, and we screen for more people. And pretty soon we get up to 200, at which point I can't debrief everybody. We do cards then. We, we'd like to, if we have time, to do 12, because that's how long it takes. You have to live with the movie. People don't understand that. I have to
2: idea. marinate it.
3: Yeah, you have to live with it and uh, learn what it wants and what it needs. And um, so uh, it, it, all the editing is just absolutely fascinating. You would love to be in the room.
2: This, this is a work that you didn't necessarily, I wouldn't say... You you
3: fell into it, but you were certainly on a different course for a while. Definitely. You you, you grew up where? My mother and father met in France. Um, They were both Americans. They married there. My older brother was born there in Paris. And then we were transferred to Algeria, and my mother crossed the Mediterranean Ocean. She was carrying me at the time. I was born in Algeria, but unfortunately... The North African invasion occurred where all the allies invaded to try and get rid of the Nazis in other parts of northern Africa. And so we were evacuated. But my mother loved Algeria. She would have loved to stay there. She was always out. Your dad was there because he was with
2: Shell Oil. Standard Oil. Standard Oil. S.O.? S.O., yeah.
3: And then my father went to Aruba in the Caribbean. And that's where I grew up. With S.O. as well? Yes.
2: What was that like, Aruba in the Wartime and post war
3: time. Well, in the wartime... You were there until
2: 55.
3: That's right. And right. they were actually torpedoing. They were trying to knock... The Germans were trying to knock out the refinery because it was fueling the North African invasion. And so they would uh, lob torpedoes and also um, mortars in trying to hit the oil tanks, which were above where we were living. So we were taken out every night, wrapped in blankets, and taken to the one building that, that was made of stone um, <sighs> and stay there. And I remember seeing the burning tankers along the horizon um but eventually, the Germans did not take the island. And what happened was they'd brought all kinds of Europeans, people from Australia, from all over the world. So I grew up in a European atmosphere, which I love. So when I came back to the States, when my father was transferred back to New York, it was a shock.
2: You got the bends. It was shocking. <laughs> it, was shocking. it was really I What was the my, most shocking thing for you? 1955, <laughs> you're in New York.
3: Yeah, it was, no, New Jersey. New Jersey. So, in a, my father was commuting into New York. Um, so, I was in Ridgewood, New Jersey, which was a, a you know, could parts of it were, were well off. We were not, we were in the sort of poorer part of it. But, uh, the thing that shocked me was the rigidity of this sort of social code. If you weren't a cheerleader or a football player, you were nobody. Right. And I was very unused to that kind of thing. Pre-tribal
2: in American yes, high school. And, so.
3: and also seemed very limited. Although the education there was excellent, but it wasn't until I went to Cornell University, where I met a whole bunch of New York Jewish girls, I was saved because they read books, <laughs> they listened to music like I did. I was abs- and I just loved being at Cornell. On and you had teaching. a different plan. You were going to study what no, at Cornell? well, I wanted to become a diplomat. So I studied the Russian language. as one of the first Russian language courses in America uh, because Sputnik had just gone up, so everyone was panicking. And so I studied Russian and political science with some great, great teachers. And then I went and took the Foreign Service exam, passed the exam, but they do a, a stress test with you afterwards where they have people from the CIA and other things try and upset you as if you're at a... Uh, reception in South Africa. And they say, what would you say if somebody said, what do you think about apartheid? I said, I would say it's terrible. And they said, well, you can't say that until the government tells you you can say that. You are going to be very, official
2: policy. Yeah. That's right.
3: You're going to be very unhappy here. You should go to the USIA. But I didn't want to do that. Uh, Why? So, I don't know. You yeah, the travel
2: bug. What's the difference? Don't <laughs> right.
3: You're right. I don't know. It was right. probably stupid of me. On the other hand... So I went to work for, for the first Peace Corps program at uh, Columbia University. They were going to Sierra Leone. And then I saw something in the New York Times, which never occurs, which said, willing to train assistant film editor.
2: Now, w- no, wait, now what the hell were you thinking?
3: Well, uh, what was interesting was that there was this wonderful program called Million Dollar Movie, which, I remember. which ran the, the, uh, the same film nine times. And Scorsese learned about so many films, but particularly the films of Powell and Pressburger, he would watch them nine times until his mother said she was going to kill him. Um, and I was watching that same program. I didn't even know that. I was watching The Life and Death of Colonel Blimp. So you were a movie watcher? Well, I guess I was. I didn't know uh, that that it meant anything. But, but I was remember-
2: movies in your, what were movies in your family?
3: Well, yes, I did see... My mother took me to see The Red Shoes in Aruba. And at one point...
2: But they uh, weren't big moviegoers, your parents?
3: Um... Not big ones, no, but. Theater? We, music? Well, yes. It, when it, my mother would have, having lived in Paris, she loved all arts, right. and she taught me enormously about that, which was great. It, very interesting, my brothers completely didn't go with it at all. They hated it. And my mother and I, whenever we would see one of those signs on the side of the road, you know, that says revolutionary farmhouse or something, we would immediately, and they would go, oh, no. And even to this day, my brother won't go into a museum, whereas the first thing I do, I go into a museum. So my mother gave me all of that. I'm so grateful, even though she didn't want me watching television in the afternoon, I did. And I remember that the life and death of Colonel Blimp, which is still one of, I think, my all-time favorite of my... My husband's films was seared into my mind I remember that and I remember Hamlet was pretty Olivier's Hamlet was pretty startling but I just guess I saw this ad in the New York Times said willing to train assistant filmmaker And I thought well why don't I just go see what this is like so and it was this horrible man who was butchering the films of Fellini, Antonioni, Truffaut for late-night television. And on Rocco and his brother, Visconti's great film, he took out one entire reel. I said, you can't do that. And he said, nobody's looking at these things at 1 o'clock in the morning. But Marty was. And um, so it was pretty appalling, but... I did learn to cut negative and I learned to put subtitles. So that on. was
2: a job you had to do that and with and Yeah, And he trained you how to do it.
3: And I learned to use a movie all of which was very helpful. Then I, I couldn't stand this guy anymore and I saw an ad and it said a six week course at, at what was called Washington College, which became part of NYU, and a six week course in, in filmmaking. So I thought, well, if I quit, I'd just have enough money to take that course. So I went down... So something
2: changed while you had that job. You got the bug.
3: I guess so. I guess so. So I get there at this course, and uh, run by an incredible Armenian-American named Haig Mnugian. And when I first went down, I was a little late, and I heard somebody screaming inside the lecture hall. turned out that's just the way Hague always talked, <laughs> and he was a wonderful support to Marty. And Marty wasn't there then, was he? Well, Marty... You no, know, this is how I met him. So we go to this six weeks course, and they carve us up into ten... Ten people for each little film. And the film I was on was a documentary about harness racing. So boring. But at the end of the six weeks, close to the end of the six weeks, the professor said, does anybody here know how to cut negative or help Martin Scorsese because he's made a student film and somebody has cut his negative wrong? And so if there's anybody who can help him. And I said, well, I'll try you know, um, and I went over, and he had been up for two days editing the movie, and he was completely zonked, but his eyes were open. And so I started running the film on the synchronizer, and I said, "Well, you've lost six frames here. Maybe we can add them at the tailor." So I helped him patch it back together.
2: But but explain to people who don't know what you mean by negative cutting.
3: What happens is when you get a take. The camera slows down, and you get what's called a flash frame. So, a white four or five frames. You finish editing your movie, then you have to cut the negative to fit the way you've edited the work print. So, you pull the negative first from flash frame to flash frame, and then, very carefully, you spice it together. You 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 match it to the work print, and you cut off what you don't need. You never cut right close to what the number was on the work print. And this young woman had accidentally done that. By the way, about 50 years later, she contacted me. And she said, (laughs) I'm the person who did it, and I'm so sorry. And I said, no, don't be sorry. You gave me the greatest life in the world. If you hadn't miscut that negative, I would never have met him. Oh, my God. So it's a miracle. So you you salvage Marty's...
2: A student film. Student film. Right. And what did you make of him then? Well... It's a young... It's, it's Marty who's it was in college.
3: Right. Well, all of us knew from one particular student film called It's Not Just You, Murray, which is filled with incredible ideas, that he had it. It was very clear he had it. When, what was the
2: it that he had? Storytelling on film?
3: Brilliant ideas, startling ideas. For example, It's Not Just You, Murray starts with uh, uh, somebody's shoes, and a hand comes into frame, and he encourages the camera to lift up to his face it was just just, i mean just unbelievable great great ideas uh so then what happened was a group of us got together and we were making films for pbs uh short films um covering aretha franklin concerts um and helping fellow filmmakers finish their films and one of them was marty's Who's That Knocking, his first feature film, which he had shot part of and had run out of money. And so we volunteered our efforts to help him finish it. And then he taught me how to edit on that movie. I knew nothing about editing, nothing. So I was on the crew as we were trying to help him finish it. And we all did everything. We pushed the... A wheelchair that had the cameraman in it, because we didn 't have dollies. Um, we ran sound I uh, would get lunch. I learned to tie into power sources in the basement. People said to me, "Bend your legs because if you get the jolt you 'll fall down and it 'll break the contact so <laughs> and I drove the car with the cameraman on the front for a, and again for a tracking shot. It was great it was I
2: think it was the uh, Cone brothers. I could be wrong. I was reading an article about raising Arizona and the they were saying how their improvisations with the camera led to like certain names. They have a thing called the blanky cam. <laughs> and if you wanted the camera to have the point of view of the dog that was attacking you they would lay the cinematography operator on a blanket and pull him across the (laughs) lawn, and he'd be right on the heels of the victim. Yeah, and everybody was
3: doing that. I mean, now, you know, Napoleon, the great film by Abel Goss, a silent film, he had uh, small cameras that he threw over the... He had people throw them over the wall of this fortress to give the idea of what a cannonball would be like going into a fortress. So it was the point of view of... Of the cannonball. (laughs) (laughs) So people have you know, people were inventing all of these things all along in, in film.
2: Coming up, the one piece of work that Schoonmaker considers the perfect film. To hear another voice behind some of Hollywood's biggest films, check out my interview with former Walt Disney CEO Michael Eisner. Today he still prefers movie theaters to a private screening room. I almost only go to the theater. <laughs> I go at least twice a week. And what, and what do you do? I often go at 10 o'clock
4: or midnight. Uh, can't drag my wife out usually. I'll go in the afternoon. I can remember even being at ABC when I was 27 years old and having a fight with somebody and saying, you know what? I'm getting out of here and go to Broadway and
2: go to a movie. Take a listen at here's org.
4: At Retirement Income You Can't Outlive is the ultimate flex. Who's with us? Start saving now at GameBridge.io. Please visit GameBridge.io slash ParityFlex for current rates, full product disclosures and disclaimers, and other important information.
1: Visit LiveNation.com slash ConcertWeek to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum 41, 30 Seconds from Mars, oh, and Two-Door Cinema Club.
2: This is Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing. Initially studying to become an international diplomat, Algerian-born Thelma Schoonmaker's life took an interesting turn in the late 1960s when she met Martin Scorsese, then a sleep-deprived film student. The partnership changed her life eventually leading her to Michael Powell, a cinematic mastermind in his own right, whom she'd marry in 1984. But before love came work, with Marty, as she calls Scorsese, driving the train.
3: He taught me how to build a scene, how to, when to use close-ups, when not to use close-ups, um, how to learn what's good acting, um, how to build rhythm between two actors. Uh.
2: He's never in a position where the actress he's working with... Don't deliver what he wants. He gets the actress he wants. Or he doesn't make the film.
3: Yes, he casts impeccably, but there are good and weaker performances, you know, so one of my jobs is to make sure we're using the very best, and you wean down and wean down. Is there a technique to
2: that as well? Avoid close-ups from people you think are less truthful, or
3: oh no, no. I mean, usually you can always with him. He knows. He shoots until he gets what he needs. Right. He he knows right. what he needs. Particularly as an editor, he knows right. what he needs.
2: Less that people are weak than just other people dazzle you, <laughs> right?
3: Well, some, yeah, I mean, some actors, it's take one, you know, other actors work towards something. For example, Marty and De Niro did 15 takes on the last scene in Raging Bull where De Niro is confronting himself as Jake LaMotta in the mirror and he's doing the on the waterfront speech. They wanted to do 15 takes because they were trying different ways of him confronting himself, actually forgiving himself. And I thought one take was more emotional, I like that, but Marty liked another one that was colder and he so we screened it two ways with friends of ours and he was right. <laughs> mm-hmm. So that's the kind of thing. So it doesn't mean some actors like Daniel Day Lewis or Kate Blanchett are often like, take one, that's it. They come in so prepared. Yeah. So they're living. That part, yeah. uh, other actors like to work towards it leo and and Bob like to work towards something with Marty, mm-hmm. so um it's a matter of of uh just trying to get the best and then seeing is that working with what's the best in the other actor maybe it's not so you have to change something it's uh it's very difficult to describe editing <laughs> no, you, you 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 made that clear, yeah, I mean so one of the first things you would have taught me is how not to go to close-ups too quickly, that two shots are sometimes just as good. But that's a very simple thing. I mean, there's so much that's about rhythm and pace and... Um, letting
2: it breathe. Oh, yeah. Letting it breathe, letting, let, watching the people feel and go through it.
3: Yeah, and uh, Marty wants people to, particularly with a film like Silence, which is so different from what's being done today, um, he wants people to... Engage with the movie and make up their own mind about what they're seeing, not be told what to think. He hates that when filmmakers tell you what to think. A lot of that goes on today. So one of the things he wanted in silence was to not have any score at all because he felt the score might be telling people what to think. Eventually, we do have a very subliminal score which comes out of cicadas and things. And there are a few times where you hear a piece of music up front, but normally you don't because he did not want to to tell them what to think he wants them to feel it and make up their own mind and after people see silence they say they talk about it for two weeks because there's so many big questions that are raised there about doubt and faith that um it provokes that kind of thought which is what he wanted that's all he wanted
2: No, the movie opens silence yes it's very quiet if you will but yes. nonetheless it's a sequence of torture It's a sequence of Liam Neeson, you know, watching, decided I don't want to ruin the film for people, but something horrific is happening. And you've edited some films that are these spectacularly violent films. Mm-hmm. Now, I, now I've seen films that that are more graphic. I'm not saying that they're graphic mm-hmm, by mm-hmm, any means. I've mm-hmm. seen movies that are far more graphic and far more less effective as a result of it. Mm-hmm, yes, that's never been an issue for you. Was it? Were there ever times you sat there and said, "My God, this is tough <laughs> to to watch"?
3: Well, the thing is, you see that we create that violence in. The editing room. There's no way that De Niro could take an actual punch. All the times you see it in, in the film, when he was being hit in the head, there was no hand in the glove, um, and so his he was his head was being nudged, and blood and and saliva would uh, spray off it. But he, there's no way he could have taken all that punishment. So our job is to make sure that we make it look as if he he took that hit it's not actually violent when i get it i make it violent (laughs) with marty I, i let me just say first that i think marty's use of violence is is uh very uh important because there is as we know living in this particular time tremendous violence around the world and if you think there isn't you're you're kidding yourself if you can show it properly without being gratuitous and i don't think he ever is it's important that it be part of the films he particularly makes he grew up in a very violent neighborhood he grew up in a neighborhood where the mafia would tell people take your children off the street at three o'clock and something's would, gonna happen and uh, someone would be gunned <clears> down <throat> on the street and the kids would go back and play again so he saw a lot of that it is something he grew up with and he understands very deeply but I must tell you that if you see, for example, in casino, Joe Pesci put somebody's head in the vise with uh-huh. the, with the eye bulging right that's uh-huh. all takes an enormous amount of editing to make that believable. Of course, that uh-huh. never really <laughs> happens, but I do remember we had one screening where it was I think uh, Mike Ovitz and two other people somebody from the studio and maybe Marty 's agent, another agent and w- Marty and I were sitting behind them they were all wearing blue suits, and when that came up, the first shot of that eye and the vice came up um, they all went, oh, my God, and their all, their arms went back in sync over their heads. And Marty said to me, how many more shots of this do we have? I said, five. <laughs> and he went, oh. I was... <laughs> yeah. So we cut that down. But um, it's never violent when I get it. But w-
2: w- Was there one sequence, violence or no, just in terms of action, the pacing, the intention? Give us an example of a scene that was a particularly difficult one for you to cut, a real challenge.
3: I, I think sometimes films need to be restructured and... Uh, for example, departed needed to be restructured. Even Kundun, we had to pull up the Chinese invasion; it was taking too long. Um, so, there are, the restructuring is sometimes very important in a movie. But uh, also, it, it, silence was very hard for me because to get the right meditative pace. Without being boring, was was very important, and it was very interesting to try and incorporate the Japanese actor's style of acting with the Westerners. So uh, they're they're all hard in different ways, but I can't think of one that was really excessively exempl- so. Yeah. No, particularly not the violence, because Marty storyboards it very carefully. So putting it together is not that hard. Making it believable is hard. You know, when when somebody throws a punch they're actually missing the other actor's chin sure. by half an inch. So, And the actor then snaps his head back sure. to make it look... So you have to get the right one of those. Sometimes right. he's not; he's, he's too far away or whatever makes it believable is something that's part of my job. One of the things
2: about it is I wonder during the arc of his career is how much producers and studios try to interfere with the movie he's making. Always. Right. <laughs> so it remains that way, well, always.
3: But he's gained a great deal of control as... The films go on, but we do get notes from the producers or the studio, uh, more from the studio, actually, not from the producers. Without
2: naming names, is there anyone he ever takes their counselors or a producer he's ever relied on for any information?
3: Well, the great thing about Marty is he will listen, but he will not do anything that uh, conflicts with what he thinks is right. He will burn the film first, and I'm not kidding. Uh, of course, it's a little hard to burn digital now. So um, it can be done. It can be done. But but he will. I mean, I, I've seen him take that stand. But what happened is that he learned very early on to to walk the tightrope between art and commerce very cleverly. Because I think, to a certain extent, you know, he said, "I grew up in a neighborhood where power was." around all the time, and I understand it, I know how to work it. Um, He's been in situations, I think, with Taxi Driver, where he said he was going to kill the head of the studio. This is already documented by the Phillips, who were the producers. But now what he does is he knows how to talk them out of it. Or, you know, I get the notes first, and I only tell him anything I think that he should hear. And he will listen, but he also uh, is able to defend his position extremely well, and I've seen him do it over and over again. One time I was with him, and uh, it was a a subject matter that I'd done some research on by myself, and he thought I might be involved in this meeting. And uh, somebody said, you know, what we should do, we should take the plot of Gone with the Wind and insert it into the script. And I was just about to walk out of the room when I heard that. And Marty was brilliant. He said, "Well, that's a very good idea, George. But I couldn't make that movie," hmm. which was very kind. You know, he didn't. Hmm. He, he wasn't inflammable. However, I've seen him also when he'll storm out. You know, just say, "It's your movie or mine." You take it, you put your name on it, I'm taking mine off. I've, I've seen that happen several times. I've also seen him do something wonderful, which is to just wear them down by telling them long stories about gang chiefs that he knew in his neighborhood Um, There was one particular time where we were in a room where the air conditioning was very cold. No one had brought water in, and everyone was getting hungry. It was getting towards 12, and he was going on in these long stories about crazy mafia guys, and finally, he just wore, they just gave up. And his his two agents were texting each other, and one of them said, where is he going with this? But he knew what he was doing.
2: No, you you have been married to filmmaking and editing and your famous counterpart for years and years, and then you got married. <laughs> Tell us about yes. that. Where did you meet him?
3: Well, um, interestingly, because I had seen Life and Death of Colonel Blimp, made by my husband, Michael Powell, uh, when I was, you know, 16, and it stayed in my head. When Marty started educating me on Raging Bull, he started educating me about the films of Powell and Pressburger because he had just gone and found... Michael Powell living in poverty and really forgotten. Unbelievable. Where was he? He was in England um, in this little cottage I still own. Um, The British Film Institute was trying. People like Ian Christie, Kevin Yates, and even Bertrand Tavernier in France were trying to revive the films. But Marty, with his high profile, was able to bring um, Michael to Telluride, re-enter Peeping Tom into the New York Film Festival. It had never been properly distributed here. And just revive the whole canon. So that was going on then. It was was a great miracle. Um, But I saw Michael stand in front of audiences and see his films come back to life. It was heaven, I can't tell you. Marty was so dedicated to that. So he was educating me as we were cutting Raging Bull. And uh, Michael Powell came over to the Museum of Modern Art, did the first big retrospective on him in America... Marty said to me, I want you to go to the MoMA, not work, which was amazing. I go to the MoMA and look at the life and death of Colonel Blimp. And Michael Powell was there, and I went up to him, and I said, I'm Marty's editor. But he was very distracted because I think he was thinking about the great love of his life. Deborah Carr, who was in that movie, that's when they fell in love and then broke up after it. But then Marty said, he's coming to dinner. Would you like to meet him because you're so much in love with their movies now? And I said, yes. And well, when I met him, I just fell in love with him immediately. He was so astounding. I wish you'd met him. He was an amazing human being and he didn't talk much but when he said something it was very uh, interesting and then he came back after the dinner. I was cutting Raging Bull in a bedroom in Marty's apartment where he was living with Isabella Rossellini. He had an extra bedroom and we had film racks in the bathtub in the uh, adjoining bathroom. My husband thought that was one of the funniest things. He just roared when he saw that. So he came back to talk to me and uh, we started having lunch and then things developed and then we had to tell everybody. (laughs) Uh So he came to live with me in New York on King of Comedy um, and Isabella, Marty's wife at the time Isabella Rossellini Uh, came and said to me, Thelma, Michael should come live with us. There's no reason for you to have to put him up in your hotel room here. And I said, well... I
2: don't think you quite understand. I
3: have to tell you, we're actually living together. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, Marty will be so thrilled. Well, Marty, of course, was a bit stunned. Everybody was. I mean, there was 30 years difference in us. But uh, it didn't matter because Michael had the heart of a 16-year-old. So we had 10 blissful years. But Marty, it was a shock for Marty uh, because he knew then that I would maybe at certain times want to go home and cook dinner for Michael.
2: (laughs) There was another man in your life.
3: (laughs) Another director. He loved having Michael with us, and it was such a wonderful friendship to watch, I can't tell you. Uh, And Michael had a great influence on on our movies. Did
2: your relationship wind up costing you any editing assignments with Marty? Did you ever miss any job? No. You've, You've edited every one of Marty's movies. No. Uh, what are the I, exceptions?
3: So um, we made Woodstock, and uh, Marty left Woodstock early and went to bust-in in Hollywood. And um, we finished Woodstock, uh, the mix of Woodstock out there, but we were not appreciated by the unions. And in, in, they didn't like the fact that New Yorkers, because we were two separate editing unions at that point, and they didn't like us being there. And then Marty... Uh, wanted me to work with him, but I the union said no because she's not in our union and she's going to have to start as an apprentice for five years and then five years as an assistant and then she'll be allowed. To, I'd just been nominated for Woodstock for an Oscar. <laughs> so I said I'm not going to do it. So he couldn't work with me until Raging Bull when Erwin Winkler, the producer, got me in the union. So
2: those films prior to Raging Bull were?
3: That's, they were Boxcar Bertha, Mean Streets. Uh, Alice, New York, New York, and Taxi Driver. I didn't cut any of those movies.
2: Who cut Taxi Driver?
3: Uh, Marshall Lucas. The three editors were actually working with him. Them. Marshall Lucas, who was George Lucas's wife, was at the time. Um, so he had. He was working with multiple editors and sometimes editors who did not want the director in the editing room. That's why he wanted to work with me again, because he felt...
2: That, so that was the, the the impetus of your marriage, if you will, was it the, the, the two of you?
3: Yes, he, because... He wanted what, you around. What happened is that he felt that from the very beginning that I would be a collaborator and there wouldn't be ego battles over who's got the right idea about this cut or not, right. which...
2: Who often, knows more about editing.
3: Often happens between directors and editors, and that's very bad for a movie when that when they're fighting over... And you've
2: made very few movies with other directors. You've only made a couple. Apple, correct? Allison yeah, Anders, you did a movie with.
3: Yes, at right. Marty's request, he was executive producing it, so I, I helped with that. But then on *Raging Bull*, I was allowed to, come back as long as there was a standby editor on both coasts, and but still they terrorized us out there. If we were mixing, say, until twelve o'clock at night, they would turn on the lights of our cars and the the uh, radio so that our batteries would be dead when we came out. Mm. That went on all the time. We had to get a bodyguard for Marty, actually, mm. um, and things like raging bullshit on the scrolled on the walls. And, but finally, that mm. ended, and now we're all one local, one happy local, <laughs> and there's no problems like that
4: anymore.
2: Well, uh, two things. One is uh, roles for women in mm. Marty's films. I mean, mm-hmm. women have their place in mm. Marty's films because uh, you know men are the protagonists, and the women, like in a uh, uh, Raging Bull or Casino. And then you see a movie like Age of Innocence, where he's got a a female lead in the film and one of the biggest stars of her day. Was it different for him to direct women or to... Develop roles for women in his films?
3: I I didn't sense that. I I kind of like the women in his films. I mean, I think Kathy Moriarty is wonderful in Raging Bull. Winona Ryder is absolutely stunning in Age of Innocence. Sure. And I don't have a problem with the women in Marty's films. No, I don't. Say that. I, I have I know a problem with them. Do
2: yeah? He hasn't made a lot of films with female leads, is what no. I mean. And that's the, maybe that's not his his daily yeah, way. I, I guess not. <laughs> right. but that's okay. Now, the last thing I want to ask you is there's so many facets to filmmaking. There's so many elements to filmmaking, not just things that are camera centric, you know, like the like the lighting and the cutting and everything. But there's wardrobes and sets and actors and editing and pacing and so forth. There's so much that goes into it. What's a film that comes to mind of his when you think about that? All those aspects of filmmaking come together in your mind and just the sets and everything. And it's that painting. It's art.
3: I always say it's very hard because I hate to have to pick one. I love them all sure. for different reasons, but because working on *Raging Bull* was my first major feature film on a on a big Hollywood set, I didn't even know how to um, location. I didn't know how to behave. Um, fortunately, I had an assistant. I used to put my own trims away. Now I have three assistants, and it was weird. Marty said, "Don't worry, I'll help you through it. Don't worry." But for me, that movie was so astounding. When I saw The Dailies, I just couldn't take my eyes off De Niro. It was such brilliant direction, such brilliant cinematography, the black and white cinematography, such brilliant acting and improvisation. I love improvisation. It's very hard to cut, but I love it. And the challenge that that De Niro and Pesci gave me was amazing. It was the music, the use of music, the power, the the, the strength of the movie all, all over. It made it the one that I think is actually the perfect film and I screened it recently I go to Seattle, uh, to the Seattle Art Museum a lot to do show Michael Powell films and um, that we screened a really good print from the Academy, a film print of Raging Bull and I could not get over it, was burned into the screen, it was just one of the most beautiful things I'd ever seen, so I have to say that that is overall the one that I think everything just clicked Together uh, in an amazing way. Do
2: you know that? Um, for me, the the memories of Marty are all the things you say that opening title sequence, the horror of him going into the jail cell mm. and punching the mm. wall. The so it's so you know that the, that that man he was a, he was like a sick animal, and I've known people like that. Mm-hmm. But my other favorite moment, because it's so opaque and it's so brilliantly weird, is that moment when De Niro tries to. Brush, Lorraine down into that building. He's down there. Oh, it's down there. In Goodfellas, says, in Goodfellas. Yeah. Oh, oh go go on in there. Really? Nothing's on the money. Nothing's said. Scary. Just the weirdness of um, that, that gesture,
3: that hand gesture, that is hand just. Gesture. Well, he's he's just amazing. You know, I, I mean, I I could just look at that film over and over again and never get tired of it. It it because to watch him when he's questioning his brother, you know about his wife oh my god I mean the way Bob uh, what he did with his face there is just astounding Uh, you know nobody improvises like Bob and and Joe Pesci together they kick each other off in the most amazing ways and I love it it's hard but I it's like putting a puzzle together you know and I love that
2: in a recent interview with the LA Times Scorsese equated his And Thelma Schoonmaker's editing to a process so singular that it's, quote, almost like making home movies, unquote. Lucky for us, they decided to share. This is Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing.